from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts, WMBR in Cambridge, and biketalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. This is Bike Talk, live from Ciclavia. In the Valley. With one of the Bike Talk OGs, John Ward. I'm noticing all these little tiny stores that I definitely would not notice if when I'm in my car trying to battle through seven lanes of traffic here. Sure. Um, this is amazing. Lots I'm of kids. Kind lots of falling in love with the valley here. Great to see you, Don. Great to see you too, brother. I did a feeder ride with Councilwoman Nithya Raman, and uh, and then I spoke to her about active transportation and bikes, and it was a really incredible interview. And here it is. I am here today with council member Nithya Raman. Hello. Thank you for joining me. We're at Ciclavia. Ciclavia um, in the Valley. First time it's happening here in a long time. Unfortunately, not in my district, but we'll get them there. Um, I think it's important for listeners from places outside of Los Angeles to understand that you have become, to many, including myself, a leader on the biggest issues oh, facing I'm- Los Angeles. Listeners, listeners <laughs> will not be able to see that I'm blushing profusely. <laughs> and even people here cannot see because I'm I have dark skin. So. <laughs> it's hard to see what I'm blushing. I'm, I'm blushing. You can tell I'm just an Irish person. Um, but yeah, so housing, homelessness and transportation. I think that you are seen as a, a, a real leader on those issues um, by many. And so my first question is, how, how do bikes and e-bikes Uh, play a role in your goals for Los Angeles? I love biking. I used to be a bike commuter, but then I got into a pretty bad accident. I got hit by a car. I actually got hit by a car twice, but the second time was much worse. And after that, I became much more scared to get on my bike. And so I I love biking and I want to make it safer, but I also want to make the kind of interventions in Los Angeles that are really going to get people like me out of their cars and into their bikes. And for me, that means protected bike lanes. And so bikes, I think, getting people out of their cars, getting people onto active transportation modes, getting people into public transit, all of that is going to be really important for addressing climate change, for reducing um, emissions, for making our air quality better. But I also think we have to make the right kinds of investments to really get everyone to feel safe doing that. And that's, that's, that's my goal is can we get as much protected bike infrastructure as possible with the current context that we have. Applause. Um, When you replaced former council member Joe Buscayano on the South Coast Air Quality Management District Governing Board, Mm -hmm. you called the board one of the most critical tools we have in Los Angeles for mitigating the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. And so today is Ciclavia, and and these events are always packed. I think they're always more packed than people think they are. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee a day when we will have real interconnectivity across the city? Is that something that environmentalists can legitimately point to and pursue as a goal to combat climate change and air quality in LA? We have to think about really moving people out of their cars and getting real connectivity across Los Angeles. For me, I'm really excited about here in, in we're sitting in, in the valley, we're sitting in Reseda, not my part of Reseda, but we're sitting in Reseda and thinking about these issues. I'm really trying to figure out how we can get a fully protected connection between along the river between this part of the valley and central LA. Mm. Um, And I think if we can make that happen along the river, if we can use the river as an incredible, safe commuting tool, I think we can really move us uh, significantly in a better direction. Amazing, yeah, I think that the the LA river bike path 
uh, has been something that I've hoped that people really prioritize. It's hard to understand how long it is. People could get from Canoga Park to Long Beach if it were completed finally. Oh, is that true? I yeah. didn't actually I didn't know about the connections in, all the way to Long Beach. All the way to Long Beach, and then in Downey, which mm-hmm. is you know. It's, um, there are listeners across the country, so it's like you guys are going to have to look at a map. It's hard to explain, but Downey is, is... I've talked about it a lot because if you drive during rush hour, it's two hours, but you can bike there anytime, and it's 40 minutes. What? Yeah, and then and then the, it connects to the Rio Hondo bike path, and we're talking about at that point, you can cl- you can dri- you can ride all the way into Sierra Madre and everything on unprotected bike path. I mean, and that, that... This is, you know, and I think the river provides us this incredible opportunity, but the problem is that the costs are really high. So we're applying for grant funding um, from the federal government, from the state government to be able to do that. And basically every single development project that we have that's coming up along the river, we're making sure and negotiating with those developers, whether it be uh, the new project that's coming up um, at... Uh, Radford Studios. Um, there's going to be investment from a company that's expanding the sound stages there, and we're saying, great, we need more production happening in Los Angeles. But as you're doing it, let's make sure we make that bike path into something that truly connects through that area, as opposed to something where you have to get off the bike path, get onto Ventura, go around mm-hmm. onto the street in traffic, and then go back onto it, which is, you know, really antithetical to the kind of connectivity we want. Totally, and I think also, I mean, amazing. Thank you for doing that, really. Um, the other aspect of the LA River bike path, in, in my in my mind, I don't know if everybody agrees with this, but the it creates sort of a uh, a bike highway, mm-hmm. you know, where you can build out into the communities around. You can build more bike infrastructure from that, and you can have. Yes, I mean, that's it's right. really it's really that's an right. artery. A main it artery. is an artery, and then once you make the investment in the artery, the investments in the neighborhoods around it make much more sense because they don't feel so mm-hmm. isolated. Mm-hmm. You're oh. not just you're not going to get onto a bike path. Uh, regularly unless you have I think a longer distance to go to mm-hmm. and unless it really connects to where you're going outside of your neighborhood I think in your neighborhood it's amazing we should do more of that as well but I think it makes a lot more sense in making those investments mm-hmm. when you can really connect outside mm-hmm. yeah you, um, so you've already you've already said a bunch um, about this but re- regarding safety I, I think you, you know you led the way in Griffith Park along with Assemblymember Friedman and, and you still are and and that's such a that was such a huge gain mm-hmm. I think for active transportation advocates, um, you know across the city everybody is is heralded it or whatever. Um, but what what will be the next big one for you guys? What's the next big? Um, is there is there one on the horizon that you could speak to? I mean, well, obviously in, we're talking about the LA River, but maybe like yeah, let's talk about what's going to happen in Griffith Park because what we've done so far is that we closed off a small portion of uh, of the road. Um, there to automobile traffic. So it's literally just pedestrians and cyclists who can use it now. And what that meant for that area is that fewer people are able to use Griffith Park for for cutting through from the 134 to the Mm 5. And so that reduces car traffic in there um, to people who are really coming to use the park. That's, That's what you want. You know, you want the park to be accessible for people. It's an incredible resource. And a lot of people are dependent on their cars. So you want to make sure that people can still get there in their cars, but they should not be using it to avoid traffic on the major highways. And so that we've already made a big step towards. Now we're going to be doing, um, we've already had significant community engagement around what future changes in Griffith Park can look like that can bring us towards a safer, um, 
more kind of pedestrian friendly, more bike friendly park. We expect that report to be finalized really soon. And that's going to give uh, our Department of Recreation and Parks the plans they need to then put out a bid for the reconfiguration of Crystal Springs Drive to make it much safer. Hmm. We're gonna need to finalize some of the funding logistics, but thanks to Assemblymember Laura Friedman, we should have the money available basically to complete at least the first phase of that project. Awesome. And this first reconfiguration is really going to create protected uh, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure all the way from Los Feliz Boulevard to Griffith Park Drive. So that's that's exciting. It's incredible. People have to understand that Griffith Park is the largest um, park in a metropolitan area in, in the United States. There might be something in San Diego that people say is bigger, but I, I find you know it what? hard to believe. You know what? <laughs> We're just going to say it's not bigger. <laughs> We're going to say Griffith Park is bigger. Most iconic, baby. Yeah. Maybe Central Park Most is more iconic. iconic. Where else do you get the observatory, oh. the Hollywood sign, the all Hollywood. of these incredible views? I mean, P-22. P-22. Most famous animal in America right mm. now. I wonder if you could speak to, um, you know, the Healthy Streets Initiative. Some people see council action as a much better... Um, pursuit of addressing the mobility plan um, and, and just for, for listeners if you wanted to even talk about what the mobility plan is yes. and what I'm talking so about. So a few years ago the city put together something called the mobility plan 2035 and it essentially designed a set of interventions across the entire city which would have created more and more interconnected bicycle infrastructure throughout the entire city. What has happened is that the implementation of the plan has been stalled and primarily it's been stalled because council members have the authority in our current system to say when a new portion of that plan is supposed to be implemented, when a street is being reconfigured or when a street is being resurfaced, that they just step in and stop it. And so the fact that there is discretion from the council office to say no to the interventions that were planned in the mobility plan has really prevented the plan from being implemented in, in any real way. In our district, we've been doing it. Every time we have a, re, um, a street resurfacing, we put in what was originally planned in the mobility plan for the most part. Some places we've made adjustments to what the plan offered, but we've always put in uh, you know, more bicycle infrastructure whenever we've done resurfacing. And I think if we had a mandate to do that across the entire city, we would see a city that was moving more quickly towards our goals. The one challenge I'll say with the mobility plan and with any kind of thinking around uh, traffic and transportation infrastructure, particularly that which prioritizes active transportation, is that we have to have a capital investment plan that really prioritizes this, that makes sure that we have these sources of funding available. And unless we do that, I'm not sure that we're gonna to get to the city that we wanna see. So I wanna make sure that bicycle advocates here in Los Angeles and beyond are thinking not just about removing a little bit of that discretion to stop projects, but also giving people the funding to do projects. Right. Now maybe there is a more uh, progressive, active transportation friendly council. Mm -hmm. um, do you think it's possible that we see council action on this? You mean to make it an ordinance without mm -hmm. the... I'm not sure. The last effort was derailed primarily through the efforts of the council president. Mm -hmm. You know, we had conversations with their office about what they wanted to see out of it. There was no movement. 
if you want action to be taken on this, I do think it has to be led by the council president. So right now we have council president Paul Krikorian, who has another two years left in his term before he's termed out. And then potentially, you know, who I don't know who will be on that. But I think lobbying on this issue will really and, and leadership on this issue because of the way it has happened really has to happen through the council president's office. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, I'm going to ask. This is the last question that we've yeah. asked everybody. And we never tell anybody we're going to ask. Oh, it. Okay. But, so um, it's about bike joy and where, where you find bike joy. For me, my bike joy is uh, I ride through neighborhoods that, you know, if you drive through, you really don't get a sense of mm, them. You don't get mm-hmm. to, to absorb them. And, and so I'm trying to experience all of Los Angeles on my bike. Um, where do you find your bike joy? My bike joy is with my kids. They, I take them riding um, on the bike path, uh, the river bike path. And I think when you're in a city and you're a kid, you don't feel that sense of freedom and connection with nature. And I feel like when you're on a bicycle, the you know, wind is going through your hair. Mm-hmm. It's just like the most beautiful, freeing thing. And I love mm-hmm. that for my kids. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much, Councilman. I'm here with Tafari Bain at Ciclavia in the Valley. Tafari is the chief strategist for Ciclavia. How are you today, Tafari? I'm, I am great. Enjoying this beautiful open street day. How does this one rank compared to other cyclovias? And what are the metrics to judge how, how successful one of these events is? I mean, we definitely think about things like crowd density, the mood and tone of participants, the feedback we get from residents um, and businesses um, and civic leaders. All those were really high and really positive. We had a lot of civic leader engagement today. We had Senator Minovar was here, Councilmember Blumenfield, Nathan Raman rolled in. Residents have been really excited about it. I mean, there's a lot of Valley pride out here, you know. Heck yeah. Folks love their neighborhood and love this area, part of the city. And I think they also feel like they don't get enough shine, they don't get enough attention, they don't get enough, you know, like investment. So I think this event coming out uh, for folks felt really good and really felt like it was for them and something that they deserved. Um, And we feel that from the participants. That's awesome. A lot of folks are having a good time. Thank you so much, Jafar. It was amazing at Sigmavia yesterday. Those interviews were really, really fun to do. The weather was beautiful, truly pristine. It made it poignant when you think about how Sigmavia really is about addressing climate change, getting cars off of the road um, via the bicycle. And we're here now with Lindsay Sturman who has another story about bicycles and their origins in a brief moment in the 19th century. It all started with a supervolcano. And I know you're a fan of supervolcanoes. And in 1815, Mount Tambora exploded, and it's a volcano in present-day Indonesia. And an ash fall, which is the ash that comes out of a, a supervolcano, covered most of Europe. It blotted out the sun and it killed the crops. And fun fact, Mary Shelley was the writer of Frankenstein, as you may know, was stuck inside all summer with some friends and they decided to write a bunch of horror stories for each other and she wrote Frankenstein. And her friend wrote the first version of Dracula. So it was also called the poor year because as I said, all the crops failed and they actually failed all the way to Pennsylvania. And the Germans ate their horses. And then a man invented the bicycle. So climate change is actually the cause of the invention of the bicycle. And it's kind of magical to think, other than the poor horses, that 
the bikes really are the key to, um, you know, getting us out of a lot of this. It's true. It really also speaks to how, how difficult it has always been for bikes and horses to get along. <laughs> I don't know that that's really a problem, is it? It, it can be these days. Yeah, I think I think it's actually an interesting place to talk about the equestrian communities and the bicycle <laughs> communities and where they intersect. There is there, some conflict, right? It goes back to the origins of the bicycle even. Maybe, yeah, people are still angry. Um, another fun fact about this whole thing is that um, you... The, all these people left, fled New England because this ash fall got all the way, as I said, to Pennsylvania and the crops failed all over New England. And Joseph Smith of um, the Book of Mormon and Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, he left Vermont and headed west thanks to this ash fall from this um, super volcano. Wow. Goodbye, horses. Right. You know, maybe we should leave the horses out of this story, but they are key to it. And then, of no, course- what I'm always so just fascinated by is how bikes and trolleys came about at about the same time. We went from small walkable cities to these big, you know, Chicago, New York, LA, these big cities where you could really get big distances. And of course, LA got connected from 400 villages, right? We were a city of 400 villages and we got connected by bikes and trolleys around that, that time. And we stayed hmm. that way and flourished for a very long time. Hmm. Until, I don't know, maybe the invention of the car or well, the cars were great until they took over. There might be too many now. <laughs> there are definitely too many cars. This is Nick. Let's introduce the next interview. It's a discussion about how to get a cycling culture going in rural France with Charles Marone and Beat Cubits. Cool. Beat, you're a transplant? I'm a half English, half German person who is living in France as of a year. We're living right in the south of France, um, just in the Pyrenees, on the eastern end of the Pyrenees. So it's a beautiful area, suitable for tourism. It's got lots of cycling, some of it slightly hidden. You know, it's a, it's a really beautiful, scenic place. And we live in a village of 450 people called Fouillat. And we think of France as being great for bikes. It's patchy, as with most countries, you know, in the UK and Germany, everywhere has some brilliant places and some less brilliant places. So in our local area, we have some good infrastructure and some really unpleasant roads that don't seem to have any alternatives. That actually towns are becoming increasingly safe for cyclists, but the rural areas are less so. Um, and a lot of the cyclists involved in uh, serious accidents, that's happening outside of uh, city centres in more rural areas. Maybe you can talk about that with Charles Moran, who started Strong Towns and also wrote how many books, Charles? Uh, well, uh, I've got two that are published by a, a major publisher. So Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution, and then Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. But I like to think of your unofficial title anyway as being a recovering engineer. And do you want to explain that title? I'm happy with that too. I went to school to be a civil engineer and I did all the municipal engineering work that they do, sewer, water, roadways, traffic, all of that. And at some point realized I, I wasn't a very good engineer and I wasn't a very good engineer because I thought critically and asked a lot of questions. And, you know, a lot of engineering is about solving problems by applying past understandings to uh to current you know current situations and i i think we could we can do more than that we can do better than that and i'd like to see the engineering profession kind of grow and and reform and and change so i'm recovering from those early days of 
applying dogma, essentially. I thought you could take a look at what Beat just mentioned, which is just the situation for biking in France where she lives. Like, why would the streets be getting more dangerous in rural areas? I appreciate the notion that every place has good places to bike and, and difficult places. Um, I do think that the bar is high. You know, the, the floor in France is much higher than the floor here in the U.S. You just have more spaces proportionately that I think are kinder and gentler to people. As what really is American engineering practice has been exported around the world, what we've seen is countries building amazing highways. And, and that is a, you know, I think a valuable export that we've had. We were really the innovators uh, in many ways in mass producing highways. And I think that, you know, those ideas are great. The challenge is when you take those insights and you start applying them to cities and you know, to this in-between area of not quite a city and not quite a, a small town, these rural areas, you, you tend to get this confusion over what you're trying to accomplish. Are we trying to move cars very, very quickly? Or are we trying to accommodate a, a more complex uh, style of life and style of living? If you want to move cars quickly, you can't have people there. There just is no way, and I, I apologize for not knowing kilometers per hour, but in a mile per hour system, you know, there's there's no way to have people biking next to people going 50, 60 plus miles per hour and have that be safe. It just, it can't be done. Your margin for error is too low. I have been to rural France. I have been to rural Italy, rural England, and, you know, we suffer from the same kind of confusion in these places this kind of conflicting desire to move cars very, very quickly and make our roadway geometries kind of handle that well. And then, you know, the idea of having life there, having sheep that cross the road, having people be able to bike between towns, have uh, people be able to walk to the neighbor's house. These things are not compatible with each other. And the more traffic grows, the more life happens, um, the more instances there are for these kind of random occurrences to result in tragedy. And I think a large part of what we see now today is just simply the, the North American highway paradigm uh, being misapplied and then just the, the, you know, kind of the random roll of the dice tragedy level continuing to rise as a result. You're completely right. I think the issue has, is very much that we have developed a, a network of roads and traffic speeds have gone up. We have new, you know, car technology has come on over the last 60 years since it became more normal for ordinary people to have a car. That volumes have gone up. And at the same time, we haven't thought, oh, okay, there are more cars, they're going faster. We need to build out the pavement or sidewalk, as you probably call it in the US. Um, so we have a situation in our neighborhood where the route nationale is the route between towns it goes from the coast from Perpignan on the coast nearly on the coast up into the mountains to Andorra that route national in miles it's 40 to 60 miles per hour 50 kilometers to 90 kilometers per hour and from time to time it has absolutely no sidewalk and we have tragedies on it there is a plan to build a cycle path which is just stalling at the moment there are issues about 
ownership of the sides of the roads. So I'm sure you probably have this similar issue. You can find a route between A and B, but there's some section of it that's like, who owns that? Who'll be responsible for it? And all of these issues have to be resolved before you can create that full route. We're sort of in this situation where the, the tide has come in and the tide was full of cars going very fast and they squeezed out anyone that's um, trying to go on a more slow and less armoured form of transport between places, which are quite close together. You know, the, we, we, we've got towns that are less than three miles apart or villages less than three miles apart, each with slightly different services. So you might want to go to the post office there or the boulangerie in a different one. And all of those are certainly cyclable, but not all of them are cyclable safely. What do you do when then there's a slope and there's no place to put a bike lane? I mean, in terms of this particular place, it's very interesting because uh, as an engineer, I'm sure Chuck will be interested to know that it is a steep-sided valley. I mean, absolute cliffs and crags either side, absolutely stunning. The flat space at the bottom of the valley is limited because you've already got a train line. You've already got this rapid road. You've already got um, a river as well, a nice river, got little bits of hydroelectric on it. It's a great absolutely stunning but so these kind of take up a lot of our the space that we have available uh, the the route that we're trying to get put through um actually runs along an old disused line this was previously a mining area and there is quite a, li- a lot of these old mine infrastructures coal truck or iron ore truck um routes so apart from the bit that no one seems to want to take responsibility for there is a potential ancient track that we could use for the cycle lane i guess the answer is also just to use that ancient track absolutely absolutely it's just a case of trying to work out in in france we have a lot of different levels of administration um you have the the region that has a lot of power and autonomy um, and a lot of funding to put into things like roads trains transport infrastructure. Then you have various different interstitial layers of administration. And in France, each town has a mayor. So whether it's um, Prade, which is the uh, sort of hub town, which has 6,000 people, enormous, to uh, Fouya, which has 450 people, all of these towns have mayors who have some jurisdiction and quite a lot of power over the routes within their boundaries. Now, our mayor is very keen on tourism and cycle tourism in particular. Uh, And the deputy mayor is himself a mountain biker. So, you know, we're on board with trying to create routes within our area and coordinate those with some of these structures that sit between us and the department, and they're very happy. But once you get to the edge of your area that you have power over and it's onto the main cycle lane, then that's where the boundaries become a little bit more fuzzy. Is it the SNCF, the rail company? Um, Because a lot of this ancient railway infrastructure might be part of their estate, who knows? Or it might be part of the regional estate, or it might be part of something more local, and, and trying to work that exact ownership, responsibility and and coordination out has has been quite tricky, I hear from colleagues. I think it's interesting because when you get a situation like this, where the solution is not simple and it's not easy, um, you do wind up in this kind of jurisdictional finger pointing, right? Because whoever is going to take this on is going to be very expensive. It's going to be very tricky there's going to be compromises made, right? That will make some people happy and some people less happy. 
if you can, in a sense, not stick your neck out into that, there's kind of an inclination to not. I say that all the time. When the system grows and you know you wind up in a situation like this, it does often take a, a, a local champion, a local leader, a group that has organized itself to push for this, to actually force the issue. You mentioned the, the mayors and other people who are bikers and keen on tourism and want to see this stuff happen. There's generally a, a sense of wanting to do something, but governments also try to, and I know this is going to sound weird to people who are outside of governments, but in general, they try to work well together, right? They try to um, uh, respect each other's boundaries and, and uh, play nice together to a degree, particularly when it means they can get some funding you know, this is not an uncommon situation to run into. The most interesting part of this, and it's something that we see all over North America, really in rural areas, particularly in ones that are, are near fast growing places and, and in tourist areas that are in high demand. I mean, just imagine someone biking alongside a roadway. You've got cars that are traveling at 50, 60 miles an hour, and someone is biking along the shoulder. When there are a few people biking and there are a few people driving the random occurrence of someone driving, having a moment of inattention or having something go wrong and hitting someone biking. Those moments don't happen very often. They happen. Uh, statistically they happen, but they don't happen very often. When you start to increase the number of people driving and you start to increase the number of people biking, there becomes a point in time when the statistics just become awful. They, they just really, really become nasty. The ironic thing is that if you increase it even more, it actually starts to get better because vehicles start to be trapped in congestion. They start to not be able to move very quickly. There starts to become an awareness of people biking. It's not a random occurrence that you're not expecting. So all of a sudden, as a driver, you're just more aware. You have heightened awareness and things actually become safer. So in the short term, one of the solutions is to just increase the volume of people biking. I mean, actually try to get more people out, create more of a culture of biking, because in places where more people are out, it actually becomes safer for everybody. Both of you, how do you increase the culture of biking? So, yes, I think is the short answer. I mean, we've been here a year. I, I can't claim to sort of have that much impact. But what was really great was we arrived here and... Um, got to know the deputy mayor very quickly through the uh, good offices of Strava. I see you've been out for a ride. Do you want to come ride with me? So uh, our deputy mayor, Regis, took us out and improved our French enormously whilst we were doing this because uh, he doesn't speak any English. So we, we had to apply every word that we knew. And now we have quite good mountain biking vocabulary, if not anything else. But the, it's just going out and riding together and then... We were quite surprised when he said, oh, right, OK, you've uh, almost on the anniversary of us arriving. He said, I've just set up a meeting with the Parc Naturel, which is the regional park for the Catalan Pyrenees on, on our side of the border, the French border. Um, and oh, by the way, I've inv invited one of these layers of government, the Sandicat de Cacite Grand Canigou. Oh, and the Office of Tourism as well. <laughs> and, and my hus husband and I were quite taken aback at his confidence in our French. Um, but anyway, we put together a PowerPoint to support our slightly ropey French. And our next door neighbour, who's also a keen cyclist, corrected it. 
and off we went with our PowerPoint next door neighbour and the deputy mayor to talk to all of these people who were really delighted to find that there was a kind of nest of cyclists in this tiny village in the Pyrenees. One of the things is just about even putting your head above the parapet, coming up with some ideas. The PowerPoint included, like, let's mark all of the trails. There was a trail system that was marked, but the cycling club that put it up um, has folded. So technically it ought to be taken down. So we we talked about how to maybe take this over, how to make a better map um, with drinking water sites, because it can get very hot here. There are already water fountains in the villages where to put bike repair and washing stations in, how to signpost cafes because mountain bikers and road riders are notoriously good at eating, which obviously is great for the local economy. And so we talked about these things and and what was really nice was to hook up with some of the things that were possibly being planned. Um, The Office of Tourism works with the French cycling organisation to create a Marc Velo, which is for tourist places that are cycle friendly. And we had to point out that, unfortunately, we don't qualify for that because we don't live close enough to a a cycle route that meets the standards of the organisation. So we batted that one back and said, look, you really have to pull your finger out and work out, you know, how to get this cycle route past our village so that we can actually participate in some of the higher level cycle tourism marking. We're working with neighbours, working with another mayor in another village down the road to try and get a bit more coordination between the villages that are keen to participate in cycling infrastructure and um, and obviously work with the people within the tourism and the Kanagu Grand Seat to try and support their plans where their plans go in our direction. And they also suggested they could fund some of our plans. So that was quite interesting just to come in with what Chuck was saying about the more cyclists, the better. The finance guy was there and he was suggesting, look, you can put in an application for funding for um, things that support daily cycling, utility cycling, cycling quotidien. And I said, in these circumstances, anyone cycling is someone we need to support at the moment to get that critical mass going where drivers are expecting to see cyclists. So you, you, everyone is effectively protecting each other by being a cyclist on the road going, hey, look out for cyclists. So, yeah, so that's that's what we're up to at the moment. And maybe I'll, we can talk again to see how it's worked at some point. I think this is beautiful, by the way. And I have people contact me all the time who say, uh, we want to get money for a trail or we want to get money for a bridge or a tunnel or a trail connection or or what have you. And they don't have a culture of biking and walking. They, they don't actually have people who are out doing it. They aspire to that. And maybe there's a few people out who are you know not well-coordinated or working together. My advice to them, what I tell them is that you actually have to find allies. You actually have to find people to work with you. You, you have to create a culture of biking and walking. And, and that requires you to actually, first of all, get out and bike and walk, even when it's difficult, find people to do it with you and continue to celebrate and support them. So many things that we can do right now to make our cities more bikeable, more walkable are are really small and really fine grained. But the places that have had the most success and, and lead up to that big project that everybody seems to want are the places that have actually had people, a mayor maybe, a city council member maybe, but really more likely is just regular everyday people who have said, this is what we want to do and this is what we want to see done. And they create the momentum, the culture in a sense that pushes those things forward. It sounds like we're on the same page here. 
I would totally agree. Absolutely. And keep it up, Pete. And thanks both of you for being on Bike Talk. Thank you very much. There's no doubt that there's a learning curve to change. We're in this point now where things are starting to change. We're realizing that we need to change from fossil fuels. We need to change from automobiles. We need to create more space for people. And the e-bike revolution is starting to take hold, but it can also be a problem. Today, I have two guests. I have Luke Harold from the Del Mar Times down in Orange County and Will Ragaton from the San Diego County Bicycle Coalition. And we're going to talk a little bit about some bike lash that's happened in the South Bay. Luke wrote a wonderful article in the Del Mar Times breaking all that down into different kinds of accidents. So Luke Harold, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. You know, I wonder if you could start by kind of breaking down your your article and what's gone on in the last few years as more e-bikes have hit the streets. Sure. So I'm a local reporter in um, San Diego County. I kind of focus on North County, the North County coastal area, which is a really popular area for bicyclists and just kind of road users of all types. So my reporting on it really started uh, when the city of Carlsbad declared a local emergency over the rise in collisions on their roads, specifically involving bicycles and e-bikes. The Del Mar Times is a sister paper of the San Diego Union Tribune, which has a great reporter, Phil Deal, who covers North County. He did a breaking news story about that um, local emergency proclamation. Right. Then I thought it would be a good idea to dig into the data and show things like, you know, where the hotspots were, what percentage of accident or what, what percentage of collisions involved like two cars or a car and a bicycle or a bicycle and a pedestrian or whatever the case, who was at fault, just things like that to sort of help people visualize like what was actually happening and uh, you know what the areas of focus might be for the city. Done a lot of reporting on a more piecemeal basis about cities like all along North County Coastal uh, as far as infrastructure upgrades. The city of Del Mar, I know, is working on an ordinance related specifically to e-bikes. I'm not really sure what the shape of that is going to be or what the parameters are going to be. I don't think they do either. I think they're targeting more uh, this spring or summer to get that passed. But you don't, you don't know whether that's to ban e-bikes on the beach path? Uh, it's definitely not going to be a ban. Uh, I could say that. Uh, but it's probably going to be focused more on um, more on enforcement, probably at first looking for more of a, an educational component to enforcement as far as having deputies be right. maybe a more assertive in approaching people and just making sure people understand, you know, the rules of the road and that kind of stuff. Right. And Will, let me get you in. I, I think I said your name wrong at the top of the show. I'm so sorry. It's, it's Radigan, correct? It's Radigan. Yeah. Can you address what Luke was saying a little bit about the number of crashes and why do you think it's gone up? And what do you think as the advocacy director of the San Diego County Bicycle Coalition, we can do about it? Sure. Yeah. We've been following this very closely ever since before the state of emergency was declared. Really, in my mind, the reason why the state of emergency was declared is that there were two really high profile fatalities in Carlsbad this summer. There was a woman who who was killed um, when a driver struck her with an SUV as she was riding her e-bike with her almost- With her one-year-old child, very, right? Very young yeah. son. Yeah. And yeah. child. Uh, miraculously, the child survived, but she was killed. And it was just a heartbreaking story. And it got coverage nationally. And then just a week later, someone else was killed on Carlsbad Boulevard when a car merged into them. Not only that, but in the same week, two other people were killed elsewhere in San Diego County. That shook a lot of people to their core, us included. Right. So we we did a big open letter with kind of all of the other environmental mobility or organizations in San Diego and asked all the involved cities and SANDAG to make a immediate short-term road safety plan to respond. 
So in advocacy, you like to think that things happen because of you. You don't always know if that's the case. But regardless, those those two high-profile fatalities in Carlsbad really shook a lot of people and made them sure. look hard at this issue. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, they looked hard at it. Turns out there had been an over 200% increase in bicycle-involved crashes since 2019. Wow. Which is just insane in, in the realm of trends of traffic right. crashes. It's unprecedented. As Luke said, and maybe Luke, you have more data on this now, but as far as I know, we don't know exactly how that's broken down between e-bikes and, and cyclists. But what we do know is that e-bikes have sold incredibly, incredibly well in these North County coastal communities. Right. Um, you know, nationally, we have data like e-bikes are outselling electric cars right now. But locally, if you just walk around any of these communities, you go to a middle school parking lot. And you'll see 400 e-bikes locked up and kids. Wow, at a middle really, school. Seriously, in high school, wow. high school, middle school, all over North County. Well, that's um, great that they're riding to school. I love that. It's great, right? It, it, and it's exactly what we've been hoping and trying to, to see for years. Yeah. But that leads us to the interpretation that kind of what, what's happening here is not some, you know, suddenly more dangerous road condition or more erratic riding from cyclists or from drivers, although... You know, there are certainly are issues with with that driving post pandemic. We're seeing more people riding than ever before on the same roads that have always been dangerous, you know, and right. that have kept people from riding their bikes for many years because without higher speeds and some of those hills, it just might not have felt safe. Right. Now people feel a little safer. They feel a little more comfortable. They're going out and riding these huge numbers and they're coming face to face with roads that just never have been designed to accommodate. Right, yeah, there's there's no upgrade in the roads for no. for different kinds of users of the road space. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, you know, the same roads that were designed in this these super car dependent suburbs, a lot of them built kind of post-war, right. being six lane arterials and cul-de-sacs have never been safe. Unfortunately, we're seeing the consequences of that now with so many people riding their bikes. Right. Luke, does that pan out for you? Is that kind of why you think the accidents have, have gone up and, and, and what's going on? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think um, it kind of gets into my personal experience with it just from when I first moved to LA in 2012 and just kind of got, I didn't have a car, just got a bicycle out of necessity. And it, I kind of got an instant education in uh, the infrastructure and the roads and right. just kind of over time learning like how hostile the roads can be if you're, if you're not in a car. Well, so Will and, and Luke both, what do we do about this? How do we bring these numbers down? You know, we just did a, a die-in a couple of weeks ago on the steps of City Hall here in Los Angeles to protest that last year in 2022, there were 312 people killed in traffic crashes. That's up 30% from the year before and 40% from the year before. And here we are in our eighth year of our vision zero and the numbers are going the wrong way are there any any solutions out there what do you guys see on the ground yeah i mean we definitely have our vision of what the solution is and that's very simply infrastructure the factors that lead to road fatalities are, are very clear it's high speeds it's mixing different kinds of road users who are traveling at different speeds and are right. different weights and that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what most of our streets are like right now is we, we don't have this kind of separation of, of uses that we need. We have roads that are really unsafe for pedestrians, long crossing distances, no traffic calming. If we have bike lanes at all, they're rarely protected. And so 
to save lives, we need to transform the built environment. We need to get a protected bike way on every road with a speed limit over 30 miles an hour, or, or even, you know, any road with really high traffic volumes that maybe has a speed limit over 25 miles an hour, protected bike lane could be appropriate as well. So that's what you're talking about. When you say infrastructure, you're talking about a protected bike lane in most cases? That and many other things too. So, I mean, for cyclists, that's the easy answer, right? That's the first thing we need to do is get get protected bike lanes on these high-speed arterials that right now have maybe a striped bike lane, maybe nothing right. at all. But there's a lot more to do too, right? So, you know, for cyclists, we have to think about intersections, protecting the intersections where we can get them, you know, kind of roundabouts on some of the, the more minor intersections. And then for pedestrians, there's a, there's a lot more to think about too. So any kind of traffic calming is helpful, you know, speed bumps, bump outs, chicanes in, in narrow roads, converting one-way streets to two-way, uh, also calms traffic, painting high visibility crosswalks, doing traffic signal upgrades that give pedestrians uh, their own exclusive signal phase to cross the street without any cars going through the intersection. So I'm kind of just doing a really wide gloss. No, sure, a, a broad stroke. A Luke, let me ask you, from a journalist's point of view, how, how likely is the South Bay to, to do some of that stuff? I think the people who are in positions of power, whether it's at the city council level or planning commission level, et cetera, uh, the people who participate tend to skew a little older in terms of age, which I think has a little bit of a built-in bias towards the car-centric point of view. And I think right. so. some of these changes are a little uh, a little slow in terms of, uh, you know, the rate of the infrastructure upgrades that we do make in the interest of bicycles, e-bikes, for example. The city we're talking about is Carlsbad, Carlsbad which is correct. in our North County region. And yeah, so Carlsbad declared a state of emergency around traffic safety and specifically bike safety. So politicians are totally paying attention to this. And Carlsbad is not a historically progressive city either. It's It's been a, a fairly conservative city, kind of moderate, but, right. but not progressive by San Diego standards. But, you know, politicians on both sides of the aisle are taking this seriously and they want to see action. The issue is convincing those politicians and people on boards and commissions that the kind of data-driven solutions that we know save lives will actually be effective and are worth the cost of maybe slowing down traffic or, you know, adding a minute to someone's commute. That's right, the challenge. Right. So there's, there's, I think, a desire to do something about the issue that's pretty broad across the political spectrum. Yeah, but, but not always the, the um, political will. The political will and just convincing people that the solutions will work, right? Even though there's there's mountains of evidence, mounds of evidence, right? Right. But people don't believe it, and you know, for some reason, people that are in traffic commissions don't follow the studies, and right. and they don't believe it either, or they're just sensitive to these complaints. People people say, "Oh, it's going to slow down my commute," despite evidence that actually says otherwise. Right. Um, they say that. You know, it doesn't fit aesthetically with uh, this look of the community. and Which is so crazy because I think the roundabouts are much better looking and a much better use of space than just a big four-way intersection. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And they actually get people moving faster. Traffic usually flows better, but at, at, right. at slower speeds. Right. Calmer speeds, I think, is the term we like to Palmer use, right? It's a term we want well, to you, know, you, you were mentioning the data, and that's what's, what was so great about Luke's article is it really broke down the data of the different kinds of crashes. I think it really uh, helps people actually see like empirical evidence in their communities, and Will might know more about this than I do, but in the San Diego community of, uh, of North Park, which is a really trendy area, 
you know, a lot of bars and restaurants, that kind of stuff. There was a whole thing about building a bike lane along its 30th street corridor, a lot of consternation about accessing businesses and stuff like that. The city went forward with it and all those concerns never really did not really bear out. It's still thriving there sure. by park standards. And so I think, you know, we get more like empirical evidence like that, that, you know, the sky's not going to fall if you build like right. a bike. I think your your article was so great about that. And, you know, as advocates, we need that data to take to the city council meetings, to take to the neighborhood council meetings, to take to the bar owners and, and restaurant owners along the streets to let them know that, you know, one car parked in front of your restaurant could be an outdoor table or, you know, something like that. Luke, Harold, and Will Radigan, thanks very much for being on Bike Talk. Before we go, I wonder if you guys could both tell our listeners how to reach you. Luke, you want to go first? Our website is delmartimes.net. I'm on Twitter um, at Luke underscore Harold. Great. Will? You can find us at sdbikecoalition.org and you can follow us on Twitter at sdbikecoalition. Uh, If you live in San Diego or anywhere nearby, we'd love to have you get involved. Great. Well, Will Radigan, Luke Harold, thanks for your time and all you're doing for Safe Streets. And thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thanks. Thank you. Gia Wilson, Streets Blog USA. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm good. So I saw a a tweet from you and I wanted to talk about it. Uh, You tweeted some traffic violence statistics. The cities with the most and least traffic fatalities, you said, we've done a really good job at hiding how bad traffic violence is in a lot of cities by focusing on car-centric metrics like deaths per vehicle mile traveled. What is different about these charts? So these charts had some surprising statistics in them and some some lists basically that we can delve into. And it also had a really interesting map of all the cities in the country that haven't uh, experienced any traffic deaths for four years or more. And it turns out there are a whole lot of them, which is pretty interesting in a country where we tend to talk about things like Vision Zero, the goal to end traffic violence, um, specifically fatalities and serious injuries as kind of a pipe dream. It's actually already happened, not necessarily in a good way. When we say that a city has achieved Vision Zero, usually what we mean is they have implemented a Vision Zero approach, a safe systems approach like we see in Sweden where the Vision Zero concept originated, in the Netherlands certainly, of slowing down vehicles, making vehicles safer, making road users safer. That is very different than just experiencing zero road deaths. So there is like a big, big list of cities across the country that have experienced less road deaths. A lot of those cities are like tiny little suburbs where the arterial is on the edge of town. Everybody's driving everywhere, but the arterial doesn't run through the middle of town. Or if the highway exit is in the middle of town. It's a really congested little cluster full of strip malls where nobody's walking. Everybody's in an SUV. Yeah, there are some crashes, but not a lot of people are likely to die. So it's different than Vision Zero in the sense of um, a city like Hoboken, New Jersey, which ranked as the second safest city over population 50,000 Uh, that hasn't yet achieved Vision Zero for four years in a row because they are taking road design really seriously and systematically trying to make dangerous roads safer. There are a lot of cities that kind of get to the zero number almost by accident or by virtue of shunting their traffic violence off onto the edge of town, basically. Yeah. If nobody walks, then nobody gets. Right. (laughs) You want to talk about the better cities and the worst cities and why that is? Hoboken is good. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the worst. So there's a list that I'm, I'm sure you all can share in your show notes or whatever of the top 25 cities over 50,000 people with the highest traffic fatalities. Some of them are not a big surprise. Number one on the list was Daytona Beach, Florida. They have a fatality rate of 38.54 per 100,000 residents. The national median is 5.87. So they are like wow. six and a half times higher, right? Um, Daytona Beach, we see a lot of articles about specifically pedestrian safety. As you get down the list, though, there's places like Gary, Indiana is number two, Jackson, Mississippi, St. Louis, where I live is number 11. Um, And a lot of these are places that, you know, St. Louis, I can speak to most directly because I live here, have actually a lot of walkable neighborhoods in there. They were trolley towns um, before highways were built, but they have been retrofitting their city's four car dependencies in the year since, and they have really poor transit access usually. So there's a lot of people are depending on driving. And when people are walking, they're doing so in pretty dangerous environments, um, though they are being encouraged to walk until they get to that arterial on the edge of the streetcar suburb, you know, which is exactly where I live. And they ha- find themselves having to cross five lanes of traffic um, on roads filled with SUVs. So it's a challenging list to look at for a lot of people. Um, A lot of the big cities that we talk about a lot in the street safety conversation are not going to be on that list. Like New York City obviously isn't on there. LA isn't on there. Um, I'm trying to think in your neck of the woods in Massachusetts, if there's much on there, there really isn't. Um, But they're cities that deserve a lot of attention because they often don't have vision zero movements. They don't necessarily have a lot of advocates who are galvanized around this issue. And stats like this suggest that maybe they should. Those were the bad places. Yeah. (laughs) But New York City's on the good list, right? Well, New York City isn't on the list at all um, in the sense of like the top 25 rankings. So again, this is also sort of like a statistical thing that we need to talk about. Big cities are generally not going to like rank really, really, really highly on when you set the threshold at 50,000 population. So like top, the the good cities, and when I say good cities, I mean cities that have not yet achieved a a full four years of vision zero, um, which the only city over 50,000 that actually has done that is Sammamish, Washington, which I've been told by people who have read this list is like kind of a suburb where not a lot of people drive, Um, not a lot of people or not a lot of people, excuse me, walk or bike where everybody's driving, where there really aren't a lot of opportunities for crashes, Um, not because they are specifically pursuing a less car dependent, safer system, but because they're a suburb that's found a way to sort of export their traffic violence to the town over. Um, The cities that are ranking really well on the list are cities like Hoboken, which is number two, very nearby Passaic, New Jersey. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's another tiny little town that could, for all intents and purposes, be a suburb of New York City. It's right across the river. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, Glen Ellen, Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago. And what interests me about this list is a lot of these are entering suburbs of major cities. They are limiting car traffic because they're suburbs a lot of the, a lot of the time. They're not limiting tra- car traffic in a good way by, for instance, designing human-scaled roads where people are encouraged to walk and bike and feel safe, um, but car the car right-of-way is limited, they are instead building a gated community or creating oh, right. curving one-way streets where 
it's, you know, not likely to be used as a cut through. So yeah, you're not going to have a lot of car crashes there because you don't have a lot of cars there. You have these big houses on big lots where every family is going to have four cars in the four car garage, but they're the only ones coming and going plus a very select number of their guests. Um, that said, I do think that those are still road design decisions. Um, they're not the good ones that I would like to see cities make, but you know, they are, design choices and land use choices because these traffic violence stats are always the product of land use choices. It's a question of whether they are ones that are comprehensively good or have this one good side effect, but then also a lot of bad side effects. Because again, all those people and, you know, I'll pick on Lakewood, Ohio, which is number six on the quote unquote good list right outside of where I grew up in Cleveland. Um, Lakewood has some really great things going for it, but it also has a lot of suburban development that is dependent upon people in downtown Cleveland um, absorbing a lot of traffic violence to get them the goods and services that they need. It's a tricky conversation because I never want to say like, woo, like Evanston, Illinois. I don't know you guys. I don't, I don't know these cities in depth, um, but I do know that we have things that we can learn about vision zero from every place, good and bad. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I would never look at this list and be like, here are the takeaways for each and every one of them. I do think that they do point to the fact that these are systemic, these are structural issues that we need to start unpacking and we need more analysis. Does this change in how we measure traffic fatalities? This is new for the U.S. Department of Transportation, and that's a good thing, right? Per capita traffic fatalities instead of vehicle miles traveled, which was in your tweet, you said that's more car centric. DOT has always measured this stuff in lots and lots of different ways. It is very unusual for them to put out a visualization and a ranking that puts it in terms of per capita fatality rates rather than VMT to, to put it front and center and to make it really visible in this way. That is unusual. And in my opinion, a good thing. All right. Maybe we can talk more about this another time. Great. Of course. And that was Bike Talk. Oh, get that car out of my way. I want to ride my bike today. Keep me fit yesterday. I won't go stinking out the air. Leave me